0: Amen, amen. I, I, as Pastor Chris said, I so enjoyed having Tim Inlow here last week, uh, but before that, we started a series called Upside Down Kingdom, and a couple of weeks ago, I preached about the incredible invitation into the kingdom of God, and here it is, lose your life. That's not compelling by the world standards, but that is the invitation into the kingdom of God, and if we're honest here, the truth is, for some people today, that's a great invitation, to lose your life because your life feels pretty terrible right now. And, and, and some of you might be here and you go, you know what, if I could lose this life and have a different life, like that would be amazing. I will take that offer. I'll lose my life because I, I'm not liking where things are at right now. I'm not liking the way things are going. And, and maybe that's even what you brought you here today. There's something on the inside of you that says, I want things to change. I want things to be different. But not everybody feels that way. There's plenty of people that would go, man, lose your life, man. Life is good. I mean, I'm, 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 doing, I'm doing great. I love my life. Why would I want to lose my life? And the truth is, Jesus was speaking to that very thought when he said these words. Jesus said, it's hard for a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. He, he didn't say that because God has a problem with you having money. He said it because it's more likely, and he understood that money would have you. And when life is good and when we feel blessed, when you're winning at life, it's hard to accept the fact that the trophies you've earned are worthless. Let me just say that again because somebody needs to catch that. When you're winning at life, it's hard to accept the fact that the trophies you're earning are worthless. So Jesus invites us into something. He invites us to lose our life, and, and you don't have to take that from me. You can ask the guy in the Bible that had the most trophies. Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. That was Jesus' description of him. He had more wealth than anyone in the world, more trophies than anybody else. And he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. And for 12.9 chapters, you know what he said? Meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. He looked at everything that moth and rust can destroy. He looked at all the stuff that we chase after and go after. And for 12.9 chapters, he said, it's all garbage. It's meaningless. And then right at the end, you got to stick it out to the end if you want a word of encouragement in Ecclesiastes. Because right at the end, before he ends the book, he says, but here's the thing you ought to do. You ought to serve the Lord and keep his commands. He found something that was worth giving his life, worth losing his life for. If you're new to church, or maybe you're just new to a serious investigation of your faith, I just want to begin today this message with just communicating clearly what it is that the gospel presents. Because sometimes, especially in our prosperous American culture, we can confuse the gospel. This is not an invitation to make bad people good people. The gospel invitation is to take dead people and make them alive. That's the gospel. And Jesus invites us into his kingdom with these words. You have to lose your life if you want to find it. Jesus said it like this in John 10 and 10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. I have come. That you may have life and have it to the full. Can I tell you when you give your life to Jesus? You give your life to Jesus when you realize that the, the full life that Jesus wants to give you is far better than the empty life that Satan has been trying to destroy. When you recognize that what Jesus has in store for you is so much better than what the enemy has been trying to come against and steal and kill and destroy, that's the moment where you you buy in, and this becomes more than just a a, a religious experience. You buy in and say, Jesus, I give you my life, and if you've never done that, I, I pray that you will, and I pray that it happens because of your awareness of the goodness of God, and not the destruction of the enemy in your life. But, but whatever the motivation is, my prayer is that you come to that decision. And I'm going to give you an opportunity before this service ends today to do that, to say, Jesus, I lose my life and I give it over to you. I want to take the next few moments today and I want to talk about another characteristic of this upside down kingdom. And it's upside down because from the world's perspective, it doesn't make sense and this second thought that I want you to open your heart to today is simply this. You lead by serving. You lead by serving. Now, it's election week, as we've already mentioned. So I'm sure, like me, you've been inundated with advertising and maybe even text messages. And my wife's been getting calls from Mike Pence for like a month. I, you know, hello, this is Mike Pence. I'm like, wow. He doesn't call me. I don't know why. (laughs) Whatever. Whatever. Maybe you're in that boat, though. You're getting inundated with information from people that are telling you how much they're serving you. They're telling you how much they're serving you. And Let me just say, campaigns and elections are one thing, but in your personal life, you shouldn't have to try so hard to convince people that you're serving them. You know what I mean? I mean, it's kind of like Margaret Thatcher. You know, she said, if you have to tell people you're a lady, you're not. (laughs) Servanthood is kind of that way. You know, if you got to tell people, look what I'm doing for you, look what I'm I'm doing, I'm serving you, you're not serving them, you're serving yourself and your own ego. I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 22, and in fact, all four of the gospel writers are going to help me preach this sermon today, and we're going to look at a a story from all four perspectives, but I want to begin in Luke chapter 22. This is during the Passover feast. Jesus is eating with his disciples, and we are planning to receive communion together at the end of this service. This is the moment where Jesus instituted communion, And, and what I want you to see is that he's actually having a conversation with him about governing authorities, Isn't that interesting, table talk for communion, right? Like, you're like, stop talking about politics. We're trying to have dinner. Like, Jesus has communion and starts talking about politics. And he starts talking to the disciples about governing authorities and how they operate. And here's what he says in verse 25. Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Now, a benefactor is somebody who gives money or a person who helps another person or a cause. And so he's saying the kings lord their authority over them, and then they call themselves benefactors. In other words, they abuse their power, and then they call themselves public servants. If we could put it in today's English, does that make sense? That's what Jesus is saying at the table of the Lord. Look at worldly kingdoms. They abuse their power, and they call themselves public servants. But look at the next verse, verse 26. Jesus said, but you are not to be like that. You know, I like the way Mark says it even more. Go, go with me uh, to Mark chapter 10, verse 43. Listen to these words. Jesus said it like this. Mark recorded it. He said, not so with you. Don't be like that. Don't have authority and then hold it over people and then call yourself a public servant whenever you know, you're just building or campaigning your own image. He said, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. That's strong language. And then look at the next verse. Jesus said, speaking of himself, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, if you dive into Mark 10, what you find is that Mark tells us, at the moment Jesus is telling them this, 10 of the 12 disciples are indignant. They're actually angry right now because they just found out that two of them, James and John, have been lobbying for positions of authority in the kingdom, they had been coming to Jesus and asking if they could have the privilege of sitting on his right and left hand in his kingdom. They didn't even know what the kingdom was going to look like. They were still waiting for Jesus to like overtake Rome or something. And they're like, hey, when that happens, when you come into your kingdom, can we sit on your right and left hand side? And then if you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew, he tells the worst of it. He said, it wasn't James and John. They sent their mom. Their mom asked Jesus. <laughs> That's Matthew 2020. You talk about a low theme verse for 2020. Like, that's, like, really, guys? You ask your mom to ask Jesus if you could be in charge? And so they're all arguing about who's gonna be the greatest. They're all fighting for position and and, and authority. and, And it's in that context that Jesus goes, not so with you. That's not the way things go in my kingdom. And he takes this moment to reveal to them the way of the upside-down kingdom. Oh, that the church of Jesus Christ today would take advantage of this moment we have in American history to get a grasp on the upside-down kingdom, to understand what it really looks like to be kingdom citizens. Jesus said, the greatest among you is the servant of all. In other words, he was saying, you lead by serving. And then he asked him a question. I'm Look at the next verse in Luke 22. The next verse, he says, for who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table, but I am among you as one who serves? Now, why did he say that? Because they're sitting at the table and he literally just served them. How did he serve them? He washed their feet. That's not like a church metaphor. I mean, he literally washed their feet. Jesus. He's less than 20 hours from the cross, and he knows it. And he washed their feet. Let's go to the last gospel writer. John gives us a picture of what that moment looked like in John chapter 13. Now, you want to talk about an upside-down kingdom moment? If we could just take one sentence and let it be a snapshot of the upside-down kingdom, this is the sentence. It's John chapter 13, beginning in verse three. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. That seems so contradictory. Jesus knew that all power and authority was given to him. Jesus knew that he was going to die, be buried, and rise from the grave again and return back to God. And because he knew that, he took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist. What would you do if you knew all power was in your hands. And that'd just be a fun daydream for a little while, wouldn't it? What would I do if I knew all the power was in my hands? I would just speculate that we could come up with a long list of wrongs that we'd make right. We could come up with a long list of things that we might change, things that we might uh, shift in the culture. Maybe even on a week like this, you just restructure the whole thing. You just say, you know what? All the power's in my hand. I'm changing the whole system. I'm done. 2020, tap me out. <laughs> Jesus knew I got all the power. It's in my hand. And because he knew, he wrapped a towel around his waist. He took off his outer garment. The next verse says, verse 5, after that, he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I tell you, in this culture that we're reading into, washing people's feet was the lowest job. I mean, you've seen, you know, Mike Rowe, Dirty Jobs, like this is an episode unto itself, The lowest servant on the totem pole gets this job of washing feet. The roads in Jerusalem were covered with a thick layer of dust. And when it rained, it turned into like liquid slush. And so when people would show up for dinner, the host would have a servant assigned to wash people's feet when they arrived. And if they couldn't afford a servant to hire to do that job, then it was customary in that day for one of the guests usually someone who arrived early, to to recognize that and take on that servant role and wash the filth and the stench and the mud and the manure off of everybody else's feet. So they get here. It's the last supper. Jesus has anticipated this moment. Imagine this moment. He knows he's going to the cross. He's longed to share this meal with him. And he walks into the room. Everybody's there. And right away, he, he, he recognizes what's happening. These guys are still jockeying for position. These guys are still trying to one-up each other and determine who's the most important. And there sits the water basin. He's looking at everybody's nasty feet. And Jesus, in that moment, knowing who really has all the authority, knowing who's really in control, knowing that not only is he going to be crucified, but he's going to rise again and ascend to the right hand of the Father. Jesus chooses this moment to teach a lesson. And he takes the basin and he takes the towel and he begins to serve. He begins to wash their feet. Chuck Swindle writes, the room was filled with proud hearts and dirty feet. The disciples were willing to fight for a throne but not a towel. I wonder what would it look like today if the church fought as hard for the towel as much as we do for titles. What would it look like if we understood the upside-down kingdom of God means to lead is to serve? And, and here's the pushback. Let, just I'll go with you on this because a lot of times, you know, serving is not a shocking message, right? In the church, you kind of expect that. I mean, even if you're unchurched, even if you don't know the Bible, we 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 celebrate service. Our servicemen, our service women, uh, you know, volunteer firefighters, the police department. Serving's a good thing. The guy that rings the bell at Christmas time outside of Walmart, you know, serving's good. We we applaud service. But here's the pushback. Some of us we go, you know, serving's good, but I mean, I'm called to the front lines. I mean, serving is good, but but I'm in the army of the Lord. I mean, I've got like a serious assignment to do. We celebrate those that serve, but God has something that he wants me to do for his kingdom that's really important. I mean, how much can you really get accomplished with a towel? So for some of us, you know, we, we feel like, yes, service is good, but isn't there something greater that God wants me to do? Can I just tell you something that the Bible doesn't say? It doesn't say we are therefore Christ's mercenaries. But what it does say is we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. And I think some of us in the kingdom of God need to be reminded that we're called to be an ambassador and not a mercenary. We're called to be a representative of what the kingdom of God looks like. In fact, I want to give you a picture out of an Old Testament story before we go to the table of the Lord today. It's in 2 Kings chapter six, and it's a beautiful snapshot of the kingdom of God. 2 Kings chapter six. What's happening in this moment is there's, there's two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of Israel, and then there's the, the kingdom of Aram. And the king of Aram is plotting against Israel. He, he, he finds out where they're at. And so he makes up a military strategy, and he sends his troops to go and get a strategic position so that they can attack them. But every time the king of Aram gets set up and gets in position, all they find is flattened down beds of grass and smoldering fires, and the Israelite army is gone, and he's frustrated. And so he goes and he makes another plan, and he finds out where they're at, and he gets another strategy, and he goes and he sets up camp, and again... They're gone. The Israelites are always two steps ahead of him. Now, what's really happening in this moment is that there's a prophet in Israel, and God is speaking to the prophet Elisha, and he's telling him what the king of Aram is going to do. And so Elisha is telling the king of Israel to get out of there. And so they're always one step ahead, and the king of Aram is getting frustrated. He doesn't know what's happening. He doesn't know why he can't figure this out. He's as confused as a termite in a yo-yo. He, he doesn't know what to do. And I don't know where I, I hear these things, you know. You Texas, yeah, Texas. And here's what he says. Tell me, which one of us is on the side of our enemy? He, he knows there's, there's got to be a mole. Somebody is giving up their battle plan. And, and look at verse 12 with me in 2 Kings 6. The, the officer responds, none of us, my Lord, none of us are against you. But Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words that you speak in your bedroom. It's a word of knowledge. It's a gift of the Spirit, something that you wouldn't know outside of the Holy Spirit, Elisha gets the download, and he's telling them our battle plans. So the king says, you know what we're going to do? I'm going to send an army to go get Elisha then. It's funny he didn't consider that maybe God would tell Elisha that too, and he would miss him. But Elisha doesn't leave. He stays home, and all of a sudden, the king of Aram's soldiers surround his house, and they've got him fully surrounded And Elisha's servant gets up, and he goes outside one morning with his cup of coffee in his hand, and he sees an entire army, you know, bows drawn, chariots lined up. And he runs back in the house, and he's panicked. And Elisha's so calm, he prays a prayer. He says, God, would you just open the eyes of my servant? And so the servant of Elisha goes back outside, and he looks again. And he doesn't just see the army of Aram surrounding them. All of a sudden, he sees an army of fire, fiery soldiers and fiery chariots and horses. It's the army of the Lord. And they're surrounding the army of Aram. And all of a sudden, he recognizes, and we sing about it. It may look like I'm surrounded, but I'm surrounded by you. And that's where we start singing the song. This is how I fight my battles, right? You've heard this right. Great story. Amazing moment of God's provision. And we love that. And sometimes you know, we can, we can take a story like that and we go, man, that's the way we fight our battles. I mean, it might look like we're surrounded, but our enemies are surrounded by a greater God. Get them, God. Now, don't get me wrong. I love that story. I love that song. I love that promise that God surrounds us, that God protects us, that the God of angel armies is surrounding our lives but that's not the end of the story. So what happens next? Does the angel armies come in and destroy the king of Aram? Does Elijah stand up and give him a big, I told you so? No. He prays a prayer and he says, God, blind them to my identity. And so they come down. We're looking for Elisha. We heard he lives here. Where is he at? He's, not here. You got the wrong place. But I'll tell you where he's at. Follow me. And Elisha takes them into Samaria, the capital city of Israel. I don't know if they were just blinded to his identity and, and to their location or if they were physically blind. But the Lord blinded them so that this entire army of Aram goes right into the capital city of Samaria. And now they're totally surrounded. I mean, now the roles are reversed. Now Israel's army, they've got their bows drawn back. And, and Elisha prays another prayer. He says, God, open their eyes. And all of a sudden, they become aware of where they're at. And imagine this moment. They're surrounded. They're within the walls of their enemy's city. And you know what's going to happen next. Destruction conquering. I mean, everybody there expects that the next thing that's going to happen is is God is going to vindicate his people. There's going to be destruction. It's going to be an awesome display of God's power. But that's not what happens. They're all there ready to pounce as everyone on both sides would expect. Elisha tells the king, don't kill him. I want you to feed him. Yeah, serve him a meal. You serious right now? Yeah, I want you to serve them. And so reluctantly, the the king listens. I mean, Elisha's the man of God. I mean, God spared him, and now he's spared us. And so we're listening to what a man of God might have to say in this atmosphere. And he says, I want you to serve him. And so the story... Concludes in verse 16, or verse 23, it says, so he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master. Look at this. So the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. One act of kindness, one act of mercy, one meal, stopped, an earthly kingdom, what would it look like if we actually represented the kingdom of God? I'll tell you what it would look like. It's Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 12, so in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. You just let the weight of that last phrase settle on you. Like, oh man, following all all these rules is tough, and I don't know about Christianity. I, I don't think I can, I mean, that's a thick book right there. I don't know if I can do all this. Jesus said, no, this sums it all up. How many of you like cliff notes? Like, let's just cut right to the chase. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And what Jesus is communicating to us is that we can bring peace in our family, you bring peace in our community, in our nation. We can bring peace by serving others. You want to lead? You lead by serving. I mean, if, if you believe that Jesus has all power in his hand, because if you're not sure, you're going you're to be like the disciples. You're going to keep fighting for it. You're going to keep striving to gain it. You're going to keep the... the one-upmanship and and trying to convince people, but if if you can rest in this knowledge that Jesus rested in, all power and authority is in his hands, then you can respond the way he did and represent his kingdom. Jesus said, you got to serve to lead. And then right after he said that in Luke 22, I'm going to ask the worship team to come He said in verse 29, right after he said that, he said, this is the way the worldly kingdoms work. This is the way worldly governments work. Now, this is the way the kingdom of God works. And then he said this in verse 29, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my father conferred one on me so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What was he saying? Jesus was saying, if you'll keep choosing the towel, I'll hand out the titles. If you'll just keep choosing the towel, I'll hand out the titles. Now, if you'll do what I'm doing, if you'll lead the way I'm leading, I'm going to confer a kingdom on you. I'm going to give you the authority and the power that you need. But you've got to keep choosing the towel.